This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast, where non-technical professionals stay ahead of the AI curve. This week, we're continuing our series focused on artificial intelligence in compliance. As we've seen AI make its way across financial services, while customer experience and marketing and many business functions are being edited, adjusted, and leveled up with AI, we see anything risk-related, particularly regulatory risk-related, getting extra attention. And that's one of the reasons we're putting extra attention on this series. Our guest in this episode is Thomas Mangine. He started his career in the military going to the... He began his career in the military, initially studying at West Point, and after his time there, has spent nearly a decade in leadership positions focused on anti-money laundering. He is currently the director of AML and Risk Reliance for the Bank of Montreal, which is one of the 10 largest banks in North America. In this episode, you'll hear some of Thomas's perspective from a defense standpoint, in addition to a financial services standpoint. I think he has a bit of a unique view on things in terms of how to stay ahead of adversaries. And we speak first about how data is becoming more valuable and specifically what kinds of data are opening up into new kinds of AI capability, and also how leadership can start to break up those silos. In addition to that, you're going to hear some unique compliance-related use cases and circumstances that we've never covered on the show before, including concerns about sanctions. Obviously, at the time of this recording, there are some pretty serious conflicts going on in Eastern Europe, and that has kicked off a slew of new sanctions against Russia, which open up so many fresh concerns and considerations for folks in anti-money laundering. So I very much appreciate Thomas bringing up some very timely use cases. I expect those of you tuned in will enjoy them. I certainly enjoy the conversation. This episode is part of a broader series on compliance and anti-money laundering brought to you by Smarsh. If you haven't already, I'd recommend tuning in to the previous four or five episodes about compliance. We've aired them all on Wednesdays, so they're very easy to find. And you can go to podcast.emerge.com. Dot com, and you can easily scroll back through those episodes. Uh, all of those special compliance episodes are marked and colored in a different color, so it'll be pretty easy to find if you want more information on this topic. But that's enough for our tee up. Let's fly right into the episode. This is Thomas Mangine with BMO here at the AI and Business Podcast. So, Thomas, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, glad to be able to be in touch here. And, and we're diving in in the world of compliance, a world where you've been up close and personal for a good chunk of your career here, you know, with one of the, the top 10 largest financial services firms in, in North America, at least at the time of our conversation. I, I wanted to kick things off by talking about the increasing importance of data for actually driving results in compliance and AML. I think there's a lot of noise about this and has been for the last, especially four or five years. But you're living in this space. Where are you starting to see that hitting the ground running? It hits everywhere, to be honest, Dan, because the standards across the board in any money laundering compliance, sanctions compliance, fraud compliance have only increased. For the people outside the financial industry, you're starting to see serious fines against banks for gross violations of regulatory requirements about making sure that their clients weren't moving illicit money, dirty money, weren't either engaged in money laundering, assisting money laundering, or just uninformed to the point they were, they were criminally negligent. And not only have the, the number of cases gone up, but the severity of the penalties have increased. And every time that happens and an institution winds up on the front page of the New York Times 
or on 60 Minutes or whatever investigative journalist program around the world in a particular country, it causes damage to their reputation ongoing. So there's been an increased fix of what have we been missing? What are we required to do? And you can look at the headlines today and almost any given day during the week, you will see some sort of discussion in the West by either the United States, Canada, Australia, or the European Union for increased sanctions against Russia for the fighting in Southeastern Europe. So you're required to do more and more. And one of the, the challenges becomes, well, where do we get that vital information that provides the indicators, or as the industry calls them, the red flags, that give you signs that there might be something illegal or unusual going on here? You needed to look at it more closely. I think one of the greatest challenges that people have had in the industry over the decades is that technology was implemented, particularly in larger institutions, in sometimes in a haphazard manner. What worked for Com, you know, the part of the business that was supporting individual residences and handling people with their mortgages or student loans wasn't quite the same thing that you needed if you were financing mergers and acquisitions or you were trading metals on international markets. So technology developed in stovepipes. And when you're trying to access that all, all that data, it's, it's very complicated. I think a number of institutions that first look at this really need to get a handle of what information do we have? Because everyone here who's listening to this has filled out something online or on paper with a financial institution, with a pay service provider, with some sort of app like Zelle. And they want a lot of information and data from you. They've collected information over the course of you doing business. That's incredibly important to the AML compliance field, believe it or not, because that pattern of business conduct, that pattern of life, is some of the most critical information that we can collect on people. You mentioned this kind of pattern of life at a high level, you know, maybe we don't talk about every nitty-gritty specific here, but the kinds of data even just as an example of a field, it'd be useful to sort of get what the range of that stuff is, maybe even some of the things that the folks at home might not be expecting. What what does that involve? So, I think one of the most important things that that we talk about in compliance and, and in AML is knowing your customer. And that really does mean knowing more than their name, address, what they showed you on the on the bank statement that proved that they had a certain amount of money coming into their account. IP addresses are increasingly important. I would say web pages that businesses are operating and those IP addresses are incredibly important. Because if you're not looking at that kind of data, it becomes very difficult, particularly in the business world, to spot front companies or somebody that's engaged in illicit conduct. You want to make sure that the IP address corresponds to the jurisdiction, the part of the world where that business says that they're operating. And I will tell you that the in a visit that we conducted at my bank in 2015 to FBI headquarters, they said one of the most important things that we could provide in our reporting was the IP addresses of all the individuals or businesses that were involved so that they can start pulling that information and see the record of traffic of not only where that's set up, but who's interacting with those different sites. And if you're not incorporating that in what we call our special activity reports, suspicious activity reports, and suspicious transaction reports, you should start to incorporate that as a data field. So I would say people's digital and internet footprint is a data field you need to make sure that you're capturing. I would say another larger data field 
is what the business or what the individual is normally doing, with whom they are they normally conducting business. So in the case of me, my mother was born and raised in Belfast in Northern Ireland. It's not that unusual for myself to be sending money or receiving some money from a relative in Belfast. More often than not, it's me sending money. Since my mother passed away, I've made some donations to her old schools. Although Northern Ireland is a high-risk jurisdiction, there's a rational explanation why this particular person has sent money to this school in Belfast. But if I suddenly start to see a new pattern of conduct where we're seeing a whole new order of magnitude in terms of the volume of transactions, as opposed to three transactions in one year, we're seeing 30 and the volume of traffic is much higher and it's going both ways. You need to ask that customer, what exactly are you doing? And if you can't figure it out on your own from the data that you have, then you need to figure it out. And if you're gonna go approach that customer to ask a question, you need to leverage the data as much as possible so that you can frame your questions effectively. You don't wanna ask a, a very blank, open-ended question and get a very terse, almost useless answer that doesn't address your concerns, because where do you go from there? Yeah, got it. So we're, we're talking about all these various and sundry elements of you know knowing your customer, understanding their behavior and activity, knowing what the norms are for them as an individual user. And what you're touching on also is sort of these stovepipe systems sort of not being able to, to stay the norm. Obviously, many banks, you know, the one that you're at likely included, I mean, we've had so many on the show over the years, they were not exactly founded at a time when we really figured every place that we store data is at some point going to feed into some algorithm and help with decision support. That wasn't really the point. So there are a lot of stovepipes in the, yep. the banking world. You're talking about places where data can be more valuable. We haven't quite gotten into AI yet, but we are going to get there. We're talking about certain data that could be more valuable. Clearly having analytics hook in with you know, customer purchase behavior and transaction information and maybe what their family members are doing and being able to have all of this at somebody's fingertips if they're a fraud analyst is, is useful. What are big organizations starting to do to break down those clunky systems where we have to go email Sally and wait for two weeks until she can send us back a report as to whether Steve O'Malley, you know, has a relative who's yeah. also purchased this kind of product or sent this amount of money or something like that. I will say that BMO can perfectly empathize with the situation that you described. The Bank of Montreal is 50 years older than Canada itself. Wow. Yeah. So it, it gives you a good frame of reference with the bank being more than two centuries old. We've been cautious. We think we know what we're doing. But by the same token, we were established in the days when people were writing with quill pens. So we've had to adapt over time. I think one of the most important things that every institution has had to do is sit down and have a conversation with their IT people, their information security or cybersecurity people, and have a discussion about where has data been stored, what's available for ready access, what's been archived, and what you're going to need to do to set up the infrastructure, the architecture, to not only create increased accessibility to all of that information, but as well as protect those new channels that you're going to create because you're gonna see a, a huge number of people now looking to draw data out of archives. In the United States, we're required to keep banking records back seven years from customers. And then it's normal to start purging that data to save space. So as you start to bring in 
fraud, more and more fraud investigators, cybersecurity personnel, and AML investigators into the space, one, you're gonna have a lot more users looking to gain access to certain systems. You're gonna see a lot more traffic across your various pipelines. So the thing that you need to talk about with your, your IT people is, can we do this right now? Or what do we need to do to get to that space? And depending on what your budget is, what you've been doing over the years, that might be a phased approach where you go, here's the interim solution, here's the long range build where we wanna get to, because this is how we're gonna operate you know, for the foreseeable future. And so what does that network infrastructure look like? I think the other critical part, when you start taking the fraud leadership, the AML and compliance leadership, to go meet with your IT and cybersecurity counterparts, is to be able to very clearly articulate what you want. If you come to an engineer and you tell him specifics of what you want, you will get very focused questions based on getting greater resolution, and he'll tell you what he can do and what he can't do, but what he might be able to suggest based on what you said you wanted and he can't do. If you come in and say, well, I wanna be able to access more data in a very generic manner, you're gonna burn a lot of time and you're gonna probably burn a lot of patience as you guys go back and forth with, well, I need you to explain to me more of what you want. And starting those, those conversations up front is critical. You've gotta be able to find people in your organization that can sit with your IT partners and very clearly explain what the investigators that are gonna be using your software need, specifically need to get their job done. What we've seen sometimes is that third-party vendors come in and they offer a package and they tend to offer a package to somebody who's more senior but not as familiar with the person that you have looking at individual clients, filling out these suspicious activity reports, suspicious transaction reports, and they end up purchasing something that's not a very good workable solution and it's not tailored to your needs. So that communication is critical. Yeah. Somebody has to foster that communication. We often talk about the role of an AI catalyst who, you know, call it fortunate, call it unfortunate. They need to have context on the technical and the non-technical. They need to have contacts that they can pull in and get on the same page about these things. And as you mentioned, if some vendor gets the boardroom or somebody in the C-suite or some director to sign off on something, but we haven't really figured out, is this actually going to work given the way that we access data? Is this really going to work the way that we have things stored and backed up. Is, is this going to have the kind of uptime that we were thinking about given you know our infrastructure or whatever the case may be? It seems to me like one of the take-home lessons here, and Thomas, please do correct me, is make sure that whether we're doing a vendor or something in-house, we have both kind of technical subject matter expert and business leadership sort of looking at this plan and asking, what do we actually need and what is really realistic? Is, is this a takeaway or would you, would you kind of modify that? No, Dan, I, I think that's the most important thing. I will, I will preface this statement by saying before I came into the financial industry, I spent 20 years in the U.S. Army. I worked a lot in plans. And so writing a good plan is critically important, I think, in both of those fields. Your plan's never going to be 100% correct, but the, the stronger the plan is, the less adaptation you have to do on the ground. And adaptation in the financial industry or in the international shipping industry or international shipping insurance, the more changes you implement, the more money and the more lost time, which is additional lost money. And it's more pain on your, on your client base, which could mean 
that they go to the next person who's got something better. There's economic competition is going to get a little bit fiercer as we deal with some of the the negative indicators that we've had over the last couple of months. And we try and recover from this sort of unusual period that we're experiencing. And so now's not the time to be quirky or difficult or challenged. You want to be the person that has sort of a smoother plan that is able to adapt. And I think a critical thing that we also need to bring up at this context, Dan, is regardless of where you are in the financial industry, you need a lot of adaptability. You'll find great third-party vendors out there that can do maybe 75% of what you need, but they aren't well-suited to handle some of the requirements of cannabis-related products, or they're not quite capable of handling some of the nuances of virtual currencies and virtual assets, or they're not as good at sanction screening. You need to have some universality in the system so that you can adapt it, one, to what you already have and import it into your system, and also potentially augment what Vendor X is giving you from investigative software or searching negative media around the world to along with something that you're getting from a third-party vendor that specializes in sanction screen and bring those together. And that flexibility, I think, is key, not only for the interim, but as you look at putting a lot of money into this, you want it to last as long as possible and be able to upgrade it as long as possible. So adaptability, I think there is also critical. Okay. Really important point. And yes, it's, it's very rare that there would be one tool that would certainly solve for everything. You know, it's a rare, rare circumstance and it's a pretty unimportant part of the business. If you can work with a single vendor, plug it in, and then not really have to plan too much on sort of exercising your own volition in a business area. For something as important as compliance, vendors will be part of the mix, but somebody central has to have a vision and to understand how we need to grow and evolve our capabilities and, you know, what things we want in-house, what things we're able to have out of house. So an important reminder, I think, for some of the folks who are tuned in here, we can get in a little bit now into some of the use case areas where this technology is becoming more and more important. You know, we've covered in previous episodes, use cases around sort of compliance, supervision, and surveillance. You know, you're talking here about monitoring sanctions. There's a lot of different examples, but if we can talk kind of at a high level around where the AI comes in. So we've got all this data, we can track all this stuff. Hopefully some of our systems can start talking to each other. Where does AI fit in, in terms of a real use case? What are some that you like to talk about? I think AI, most importantly, is an efficiency issue, and it makes you incredibly more efficient. I come from the the world of the infantry and human intelligence in the Army. I'm a big believer in the individual, the individual soldier, the individual service member. I quote Steve Rogers a lot where he says, I believe in people. The best resource that you have in investigative work is your individual experienced, trained investigator. The creativity of of that person and the depth of their experience is the most effective thing that you have in prosecuting cases or moving cases forward and determining what's going on, what's a real problem from what's not a real problem. And I say that because artificial intelligence is designed to largely replicate the creativity and the capacity of the human brain. Your AI should be focused on going through those smaller, more repetitious tasks, almost like meditation that allows your investigator to focus on the more complex issues. We know that if we asked human beings to scan Excel spreadsheets and look for that one unusual anomaly, they're not very good at that. Or if we asked a person to write a file 100 times as they went on, fatigue would create a lot of errors or they would become distracted. 
make sure you're using your AI appropriately. Your AI is not going to replace your investigator. It's going to augment their capabilities. And what you want to do is remove some of those more simple, mundane work away from your investigative team or your screening team and hand them the, the trickier situations that they can't solve, that the AI can't solve for themselves. And that always keeps a human in the loop. And I think that's important because that maintains a certain amount of loyalty amongst your investigators. When you talk about introducing AI or machine learning, there is a, a traditional labor response where people get scared, like, hey, am I going to get replaced? No, you're going to get something that assists you. This is an incredibly effective tool, and we're going to teach you how to use it to become that much more efficient and move through things faster. And so the AI should be making your life as an investigator easier. It's going to take like three to four weeks for that to happen because you got to learn the system. Oh, yeah. Yep. But you, you've got to understand that. And as we talk about where you bring in your AI and your machine learning, there's a tremendous amount of data on all forms of, of the internet. And it will relate not only to your customers, but your institution. So you can handle negative or adverse media screening in two fronts from this regard. In my case, anything that mentions BMO or the Bank of Montreal, you want to pull that data. Well, you want AI doing that and sifting through this and removing from the sense of an AML fraud compliance person, removing any reference to earnings from the last quarter or projected earnings for the next quarter and start focusing maybe on something that highlights cases that came up in the press or criticism of the institution by former customers or from certain regulatory authorities. You want to pull that kind of stuff out. AI is well suited to sort through everything on the internet and then provide the investigators that you're going to have looking at that to just read it at an infinitely shorter list. Again, it's not just for international banks, but if you're working with somebody named Jose Garcia or John Smith, and you have a client by that name, you're going to receive what we call an alert or a hit that it might correspond to this one John Smith or Jose Garcia who was wanted for murder and drug dealing. But how do you know that that's your client? You get the phone book when you do your initial search. You want your AI and money laundering to simplify that as much as possible and present you an answer to say, this is a John Smith, but this isn't your John Smith because this John Smith was born 20 years before your client. You know, this John Smith lives in another state. This John Smith has been rearrested already and you just got a statement from John Smith. So what would, could become a two hour project is done in five minutes. You also start to incorporate the AI into the typologies, the patterns of activity that become indicative of something like sanctions evasion or human trafficking and the financial activity designed to support front companies that are supporting North Korean or Iranian sanctions evasion efforts or supporting human trafficking networks that are operating in and around the city of Chicago or in and around Miami. That gets very nuanced and it deals with the geographies, the locales of where they're operating, not only the country, but provinces or counties, as well as individual cities, the times of the day that they're making deposits and the number of deposits that they're making. When you start dealing with sanctions evasions related to ship-to-ship -ship transfers at sea, you've got to be able to track ship names, the flag country, the country under which that ship is registered, the International Maritime Order number, the IMO number. It's like the VIN number equivalent for the ship. And you've also got to connect that with the various ports that it's been to, 
some of the firms that are transporting the actual material on the two ships that are involved and the holding companies and the insurance underwriters because there's plenty of data out there to say that when North Korea is involved in ship-to-ship transfers, it tend to involve these countries operating in these waters that say they're, they're moving this kind of cargo. With Iran, we saw ships frequently changing their name at an interval of like every 18 to 24 months. They were starting to move to increasingly landlocked countries, like using Bolivia to register an international bulk carrier shipping vessel. And these red flags would pop up. Your AI can hit those very quickly. And then you could probably, if you have the right data feed, also identify when these ships are turning off their global positioning transponders, which is a, you know, the final nail in the coffin to say, yeah, there's definitely inappropriate or illicit or illegal activity going on in this vessel. We don't want our clients dealing with it. We don't want to be exposed to the vessel or its owners. Huh. Okay. Man, some of these specifics around vessels in particular, we have not covered in previous episodes, and I'm, I'm interested in sort of picking some of this apart. A few things just to kind of bring up as we, we continue to poke forward here. One of which is, you know, when you've talked about use case of where AI fits in, certainly there is the, oh goodness, will this replace me sort of argument. I think that's that's always the challenge with, with AI adoption in the enterprise. The fact of the yep. matter is, you as someone who works within an enterprise, you have to toe the party line, which is, oh, it'll never replace anybody. You know, it'll only augment them. As a market researcher, I get to say I'm actually kind of agnostic. I don't quite know 10 years from now exactly how many of those folks will be employed. However, I I do think that for the most part, finding more needles in the haystack with the same humans and keeping them focused on things that is higher priority really actually is what we've seen in terms of most deployment. So I'm not going to say you're wrong there. I'm just not dogmatic about it. But there's two things that you highlighted that I think are important. One was there is some manual collecting and collating of the data that you really don't want humans doing. You don't want humans pecking into Google, you know, BMO news, you know, BMO, you know, press release. You, know, you don't you don't want that. You want an AI system that can comb the internet and pull in all the things that are relevant and screen out all the things that aren't relevant. So some of the muck work we want to get off the human plates. And that's sort of on the data collection, data collation side of things. The other thing is connecting the dots between data to maybe flag things in terms of their risk on a, on a one to 10 or a one to a hundred. If we could have human beings only look at things that are, you know, a six, a level six risk and up, instead of looking at things randomly, where most of what they're looking at is an absolute level zero in terms of risk, we're much more likely to actually catch real, real activity. It felt like those two things, like efficiency on the collection collation data side, and then efficiency on the connect the dots flagging for for analysis side. Is this correct to assume, or would you break out the conceptual use case landscape even a little bit differently? No, I I think those are the two main areas where you're going to do this. When you send your your individual investigator to conduct their open source intelligence research, their OSINT work, when they get on Google, they get on a number of different websites, or they start using a third-party software, you want them to have the narrowest band or the most the smallest list of data to go after, the most specific details, so that as they research somebody, Tom and Jean, there's more than one of us in the world, but it's not as common a name as John Smith. They can say, no, we want this Tom and Jean who grew up here, who's got this period of military service that served in you know these different continents. These are all the hits that I'm looking for. We don't want to go, well, it could be any one of these you know, 12 Tom and Jeans. When you send them forward, they're the most effective. I think one of the best analogies I've ever heard was when I was 
doing some rescue swimming courses, they said, when you're a lifeguard, the last thing that you want to do is jump in the water. Make sure that you're prepared to do everything that you might need to do to save that person in distress and then jump in. It's not like the TV shows where the first thing they do is they run down the yeah. ladder, screaming, get yeah. off the whistle and jump in the water. <laughs> no, yeah. lay out all your equipment, have your other people out there to back you up and a recovery vehicle out there just in case, you know, it's not one swimmer, it's two swimmers. So I think those two main categories are important. And the more that we start to encounter different fields that will challenge us, because we're just starting to get a handle to all of our exposure to virtual currency. Just because you don't hold Bitcoin or Ether at your institution doesn't mean that you're not exposed to virtual currency. You may not realize that one of your clients is running a virtual currency exchange. You just see some large deposits coming in from a, a business that they've registered, but you didn't really check that it was a virtual currency exchange. That's something of which you should be aware. As we start to move in the realm of virtual assets and the greater expansion of virtual asset service providers, you're going to have greater requirements. I could tell you there's a lot of people that are very experienced in the world of sanctions, particularly U.S. or EU sanctions, that are looking at the new requirements on companies with Russian exposure to what we call the secondary market. That's something that a lot of times we never really looked at or were required to look at. The level of detail that you need to get for a much broader client base is really, really challenging. And that's where AI can help significantly. You would look more at the secondary market if you had specific concerns about a particular investor that was involved with the company or a, about a particular fund or a particular management group. But now we're talking about, hey, every single one of your funds might be exposed to money coming from some Russian oligarch. And the United States government's not gonna have much sympathy if they find something in 2023 and find out that you weren't really even looking for it in 2022. Yeah, it, it, so the, so many changing factors here. I mean, I'll, I'll, I have one little short question as we wrap up, sure. uh, but this is taking us some, some great directions and I think really opening the Pandora's box of how much we need to be considering and thinking about in the compliance function and, and why emerging technology is relevant. But one thing that, that you're airing here just around Russia is the idea that so many new concerns and considerations have emerged just from this conflict. There's probably all kinds of new patterns of passing shipments on boats and opening up new kinds of companies. And right, as soon as a, a new batch of sanctions hit, a new batch of ways of moving around those sanctions are going to hit exactly at the same time. And now companies have to be able to pick up on a whole new batch of patterns. So it, it feels like part of the challenge here is the fact that it's evolving way, way faster than any set of rules is going to keep up with. It is. You know, for a long time, and I have said this on, on several occasions, for the longest time, the primary concern has always been the regulatory authority when they say, hey, you need to be able to do this and explain something to a certain level so that we feel that you're putting serious effort into this and you understand what your clients are doing. That language is, is frequently a little vague, so it can expand over time. The United States government doesn't want to be rewriting the regulatory code every year. And as we've seen with virtual currency and virtual assets, there's this bit of a struggle about how we define things. But a lot of financial institutions need to accept the fact that they are working against a living, breathing opponent in criminals out there that are looking to exploit their institution and their customers and their institution's reputation. So you've got to be able to react to both of those as best you can. One thing that particularly complicates the situation with Russia is not only are we looking at 
broader sanctions in more territories affecting more people, but we also have more exemptions, what we call general licenses. And so it gets very specific. There's a lot of if-then sort of discussion in the, in the law of if this institution is doing this and the client is doing this, but you're not doing this particular action, then that's actually permitted. And that's a, a risk assessment question, whether you feel comfortable doing that. And that's another area where AI can be very good in generating an alert that says, look, we see something here. It looks like it's in accordance with general license 23. But, you know, let's have an attorney actually look at this and make sure that we get it correct. And that was a conversation that came up with a colleague that I was meeting with in a Turkish bank back in March. He goes, how do you keep all of this straight? I said, the thing that's easier for me is that one, I came from the government and two, English is my native language. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we were doing this in Turkish, I would be saying we got to hire somebody with near native fluency or better translation software. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, translation software, just like you had mentioned before around looking for fraud, you're not exactly going to replicate the best human expert at this point. So we'd still need some people in the room. So, okay, really important point to take home there in terms of where folks are considering this and, and what we need to be able to do to prepare. I think part of the, the value of our conversation, Tom, is not just the fact that you're you know, working within very large organizations yourself, but that you're able to talk to other peers and see what they're struggling with, what they're wrestling with. I think the good news about compliance, unlike maybe some other areas of secret sauce, you know, financial services activity, is that no bank wants to be facilitating, you know, terrorist funding. No bank wants it. So they're actually open to sharing some of these best practices. And it sounds like you've been able to learn from some of these other folks as well. I've been fortunate enough to have lived in a number of different parts of the world. And part of my job at the bank was talking with our correspondent partners and pay services and some of the clients that handle something a little bit more difficult. This is started at the passage of the Patriot Act, Section 314A and B, which really challenged institutions to share information if they thought there was a problem out there. You had to get to a certain comfort level, but your point's 100% accurate. We're not talking about sales strategy. We're talking about this is what we're doing to protect ourselves or to make sure that we're complying with US sanctions or European Union sanctions. And sometimes you get some, you know, when you talk to your partners that are based in Poland or based in Turkey, which is does tremendous business with both Russia and Ukraine, as well as the United States, they've got to really juggle all of this. And they can give you tremendous insight if you can have more of an open discussion. And conferences help, but also the ability to reach out and be a bit open about what you're pursuing and what's concerning you is also good. And having that frank conversation where some of your correspondent banks will tell you, we feel comfortable with this level of risk. And you have to either get comfortable with their position or maybe change a little bit of your relationship and say, we're going to limit some of the activity that you have coming out of these parts of the world, because I know you're willing to take on more of this, but we aren't. We're a little bit more nervous about that. And, you know, I, I'm lucky enough that I, I work in an institution that's more than two centuries old. They take a very slow and steady when the race kind <laughs> yeah, of approach. Yeah. There's a reason yeah. why we're still around after everything that's gone on over the last two centuries. So it makes compliance a wee bit easier. Yeah. Well, and, and certainly the space is moving quickly, but if you have a strong foundation and a lot of expertise around you, it's, it's an advantage maybe not every financial institution has to the same degree. And we've certainly benefited from it today, Tom. So I appreciate you being able to share your expertise with us. I know that's all we have for time, but thank you so much for being able to join us today on the show. Thanks again, Dan. It was a real pleasure to be here. 
That's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. A big thank you to Thomas for joining us, and thank you to Smarsh for giving us a wide berth to pull in any and all compliance experts that we thought would be great for this series and be able to present some of their ideas to you. Being able to speak with experts from UBS and HSBC and BMO and a lot of these big global financial services names has helped us to connect a lot of dots. And I think those of you who are listening in right now, if you are also newsletter or website readers at Emerge, you will see a lot of cool quotes from this series show up in our articles over the course of the next six months here. As mentioned, this series was brought to you by Smarsh. If you're interested in reaching Emerge's global executive audience, whether through thought leadership, like a podcast series, co-branded research, or demand generation, then you can learn more at emerj.com slash ad1. That's ad like advertise, and then the number one, emerj.com slash ad1. That's all for this episode. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to catching you in the next one here on the AI and Business Podcast. 